I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. Uh, We are still in Lent, and today we're going to be looking at Mark 8, verses 31 through 38. And this is, well, perhaps part of the passion narrative, and that's part of the debate. Obviously, it's put for us here in Lent. Let's have Alan put this into context for us. Well, as as you mentioned, traditionally, this passage is seen to be at the beginning of what has been identified as the Passion Narrative. Now, there is disagreement about precisely where the Passion Narrative begins in Mark's Gospel. Some see it beginning in 827 with Jesus' question to Peter, who do you say I am? Some see it as beginning in chapter 11, where Jesus is in Jerusalem. Some see it as beginning in chapter 14. In the flow of Mark's Gospel, it makes sense to me to see the beginning of his... um, journey to the cross, so to speak, as, as beginning earlier. Um, it might not be, strictly speaking, his passion narrative, but I think we're heading in that direction. Well, as soon as Jesus makes his pa- first passion prediction, prediction, there's a shift, I think. Well, and even though, as we've talked before about Peter's identification of Jesus as not being necessarily the Messiah that, that Jesus indicated, I think there's still a shift from no recognition to wait, uh, are you the Messiah? And mm. now there's an education about what that means. Right. So I think that also might fit in that. So interesting. Yeah. You talk about that this may have pre-Markan um, uh, origins, which I thought was really interesting. Like maybe even an, they think maybe even an earlier mm-hmm. uh, written version. Yes. Um, and, and the main reason for that is because if you look at John and you look at the Synoptic Gospels, for the most part, there's not a lot of correspondence between the story they tell until you get to a certain point in the Passion narrative, and then they all seem to track a lot more closely. Uh, I think that's probably the most significant argument in favor of the idea that there would have been some sort of written document or at least some sort of composed oral uh, narrative that was that was available in the early church because we it's pretty clear I think if you compare the gospels of one another that John doesn't really show any real direct dependence on the other synoptics so how do you explain then this that all of a sudden they all fall into line mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. Uh, without having you know perhaps a source that some kind of source either oral or written that that, that was already around so Alan how early do they think this might have been written well, I, I don't know that anybody can know, to be honest with you. A guy named Rudolf Pesch, who was a well-known German New Testament scholar, dated it back to A.D. 37 at the latest. Wow. wow. <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah, that's yeah. incredibly early. I mean, I don't know that we can really right, say for sure. Right, we don't have it. You know, here it is, and we've, we can put it as part of this uh, passion narrative. Why is this so significant? Well, as you said, as you alluded to, I mean, the fact that Peter makes this confession of Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah, you know, seems to be kind of a precipitating event. It's like, um, it's like the, the clue for Jesus that he now needs to be really explicit about what it means for him to fulfill his role. And for him to fulfill his role in Mark eight thirty one means that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. 
Again, it's important that Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah, and he probably had his own understandings about what that meant, which, as we see in this passage, didn't include a Messiah dying. Right, right. (laughs) But Jesus continues to define his mission by referring to himself as the Son of Man. So again, they, they, they refer to him with their traditional titles, but he insists on saying you know, that the Son of Man must suffer and must um, be rejected and must die and must be raised. You know, as I'm, I'm processing this, I keep thinking in terms of we as Christians today are so used to this, this concept of, of that Christ is going to die. I mean, this is part of our faith. But if you're listening to it then, even... I think it's more shocking, and it's early in this passion narrative, and this happens three times. I think it's is important for that kind of sinking in to what we're reading, what we're understanding. I, I think it took Jesus' actual death on the cross for it really to absolutely. sink in, with, absolutely. even with the disciples. Because for them, the Messiah was by definition going to restore the exactly. kingdom of David to Israel. A, a Messiah who dies is no it's Messiah not, it's at not, all. It's, it's not comprehensible. No. Um, so when as we're talking about passion narrative, I mean, I think this is a, something we throw around, you know, what what is the passion narrative? What does, where does this come from? Um, explain that for us. Well, it really, it, the passion narrative takes its word from the verb that describes his suffering. It's the verb pasco in Greek. From from that word through Latin and into English, we get the word passion. And of course, these days we don't use passion quite this way at all. You know, using that that name, the passion narrative for this story of Jesus' death, refers to his suffering. And so passion refers to suffering. One of the uh, um, one of the concepts in this text is of the divine necessity that Jesus has to die on the cross. Uh, why is this part as part of the divine necessity, and what does that mean, and why is that important? Well, I, I think I'll approach it two ways. One one from the standpoint of Mark's audience. Whenever Mark was writing, whether it was before seventy A.D. or after seventy A.D., he's still addressing folks who are having to deal with the reality that the one in whom they invested all their hopes was executed on a cross. I think that continued to be a matter that they had to wrestle with. There still was a lot of pushback, I think, especially from the Jewish context, that a Messiah is not crucified. So they needed a way to make sense out of this. The other part of it is that... It's just the very way in which it's worded. The Son of Man must suffer. Now, the, the Greek verb is die, delta, epsilon, iota. And it is kind of an impersonal verb, but it's used in the New Testament in a lot of places where the clear implication is that the necessity, the, the reason for the must is that this is God's purpose. That's the way this verb is used in the New Testament. It really implies a divine necessity. And so it seems that Jesus is aware that this is God's intention for his ministry. So it really takes on an urgency that's much greater than, if you will, like our concepts of mm-hmm. must. See, Je- if you will. Jesus is aware that this mm-hmm. is God's Interesting. plan. Yeah. This is God's purpose. For yeah, him. I think that's really cool to figure out how that Greek is used. Um, that's one that I think an average person would absolutely miss. Um, yeah. Um, well, the, you the word the Greek, must just doesn't communicate that It doesn't that communicate to us, it, yeah. right. So very good. 
And then I think another piece of this that's interesting is this concept of that the fulfillment of the scriptures is in here. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this has been something for me that has always been um, a bit of a question mark because they don't tell you which scriptures right. just that has to be fulfilled. T- tell us about, about this. Yeah, it's frustrating sometimes. Some of the places that most clearly declare that Jesus' death and resurrection took place to fulfill the scriptures don't tell us which scriptures they're citing, and that's, that's kind of maddeningly frustrating. But if you look at the Gospels, you can see that they're referring to places like Psalm 22. They're referring to Zechariah 9 through 14. And in fact, Jesus specifically quotes um, Isaiah 53, 12 with reference to himself in Luke. I think that gives us at least a starting point. And so the other thing you can do then is you can look at not only what Old Testament passages that the Gospels quote or allude to, but you can also look at the ones that the New Testament writers seem to focus on. Interesting. Yeah. I, I noticed there's a you know, a little bit of a difference between the number of times that we see that Jesus's death alluded to as opposed to resurrection also alluded to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what my big question mark was is to what extent are Mark's, I mean, I guess Mark's listeners are, are, are familiar with the Christian story and familiar with the resurrection. But when we're talking about even in Jesus's time, is, is this concept of resurrection even very realistic or in their minds or is this is this such a one-time thing that we don't even have the the verbiage for it i think they must have struggled with it you know we talked about this a little bit in connection with the transfiguration Mm -hmm. also and there was no idea of someone who was going to come as um god's agent and be killed and then be raised again that was you can find some some allusions to some ideas similar to it in some of the Jewish intertestamental writings, but in terms of a fully formed, a fully shaped concept, it just isn't there. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus is speaking almost a foreign language to them because the Messiah doesn't die. What does being raised again mean? Right. The only concept of resurrection they had was that people would be raised again at the last day. That was their concept of resurrection. They had no idea of, that there would be you know, this, this savior figure who would come and he would die and then he would come back to right. life. You know? right. That was just, that was not part of their worldview. And so I think, again, that was something they had to wrestle with and something that it took some time to really sink in. One case in point is that even in the 50s, 20 some, 20 some odd years later, uh, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth in, in answer to questions, and apparently there's some folks at Corinth who are denying that Jesus was was raised from the dead, and so he has to make an argument for the resurrection. Yeah, that's right. And interesting, you know, I keep thinking of here the mystery of God and how do we we contextualize what has happened in ter- in terms that we understand. So I think it does make sense that we have fewer references because we don't have ways to describe this in uh, prior to, to Jesus. The only one that really, really comes to mind is Psalm 16. And that's the one that's used in Acts, you know, that, that uh, the Lord does not abandon the Holy, his Holy one to, dec- to decay, mm-hmm. you know? And so they, they tried to find it where they could. Right. <laughs> but um, I really think, I really think this is, this goes back to the idea that, that the church would have needed a, a, a narrative that included not only Jesus' death, but also the resurrection appearances to help them work through these problems. Mm. We're going to keep moving on through our passage here. Um, and I think one of, ever since I've been really heard this passage or, or was able to articulate it, I think one of the most 
hardest parts for me is to have Jesus you know, say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. For me, that seems so harsh to someone who is coming with so much care. And I think it's actually for people so, so frustrating that they don't want to, they want to skip over it. But mm. I think it's actually really important. So give us some context for this. Yeah. Well, again, I think, I think Peter simply could not envision the fate, you know, suffering, being rejected and dying for the one that he has confessed to be the Messiah. And so clearly Peter still doesn't truly understand who Jesus is and what he's here to do. When Jesus says this, Mark says, Peter begins to rebuke Jesus. That's a pretty strong word, actually. Right, it's you a know? very strong word, yeah. Um, Jesus rebukes him right back, and does he does use very strong language, get behind me, Satan. And, and to me, I guess I've always seen this as uh, pointing to the ongoing temptation that I think Jesus must have faced regarding fulfilling the costly sacrifice that he seems to clearly know at this point he was destined to face, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, even his own disciples would have been on board with him trying to stage, uh, you know, a coup and overthrow the Roman governor. They would have been on board uh, with that. Yes, they were they expecting that. They were expecting that. And, and here's this person's going to lead us to that. Yeah, and, yeah. And no, you so, don't understand. And so <laughs> basically Jesus says that's thinking in terms of human interests, right. not God's interests. right. Uh, and and actually, I love this passage now. But but as I said, it is it is so it's, it's shocking. so shocking. Yeah. It is so mm-hmm. shocking. And I guess what I do like about it now, it's even shocking in today's language. Sure. You know, like some of these other things we're talking about that may have had a different impact when it was mm-hmm. first written. This still has that impact mm-hmm. on us, um, which is I think amazing. Uh, one of the small pieces of this passage that I think people really overlook is then when Jesus turns to the crowds. And it's one of those little little things that you skip over. What I found is that the reformers do not skip over it. And and I think you also wanted to make a special emphasis towards this. Yeah, yeah. The other Gospels present Jesus making this statement about the true nature of discipleship, what it really means to follow him, to his disciples. Mm-hmm. But Mark, uh, Mark says that he turned to the crowd and his disciples, and he made this statement, if anyone would follow me, would come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me, which is, it's not the normal understanding of discipleship. You know, Jesus has just said, basically, his path is one that is going to lead him to death. And here he makes it clear that the disciples are to follow him on that Mm -hmm, path. mm -hmm. Um, And, and, you know, just as a side note, um, some scholars believe that part of the reason for this being in the gospel tradition is that uh, very likely some of Jesus' disciples did literally face death. Now, you know, he says that they have to deny themselves, and, and that's, that's kind of a challenge. We'll, we'll look at that again. But I, he also says they have to take up their cross, mm-hmm. and that's the first occurrence of the word cross mm-hmm. in Mark's gospel. And so I think it's important that Jesus is telling his disciples, if you're going to follow me, it's a path that's going to lead you to a cross. And that would have been, that would have come as a slap in the face. Absolutely. To the people in that day. Absolutely. It's, it's a dishonorable death. And I think we forget. Well, it's a brutal death. It's a brutal death and it's dishonorable. I mean, yeah. um, this is this is for the, the criminals of Rome. These are for non-citizens of Rome. This is for, this is for um, the people who are guilty of insurrection. This is the way Rome 
put down exactly. any hint of insurrection. Yeah. Yep. And uh, was meant it was was a fear tactic. Yes. Um, it was. You know, um, as uh, Nero liked to line them up along the Apian Way, people right. could see that horror um, as a reminder of yep. their 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 job, which was to yep. follow him. Of course, he was crazy but that's beside the point <laughs> well but, but josephus tell us that that even a couple hundred years before jesus alexander janaeus had yep. 800 pharisees who opposed his rule crucified at one time exactly so exactly so this was something that was in their cultural memory and it was something that they knew of yeah uh, you know and crucifixion basically just to be clear was a slow form of strangulation it's, it's horrible. a horrible way to die it's a horrible horrible thing and so um the Jewish people of Jesus' day would have had the image of a cross burned into their psyches, no less than the burning cross of the Ku Klux Klan was in the psyches right. of African Americans in the South. I, I think it's ironic that we you know, we have crosses at our church in front of our churches, and we have we we wear crosses for jewelry. Mm-hmm. You know, if someone walked up to us wearing a hangman's noose around their neck, we'd be shocked. Yeah, and we would be disturbed but that's essentially what the image of the cross would have been like to them exactly exactly it's always interesting today because it's taken on a a different a different sense as i have a necklace on um (laughs) you know but i always uh i have a cross ring myself right right yeah no important point and it has certainly this the symbol the cross itself has lost its kind of lost that for us in a modern day and i think that's important it was a, it was a symbol of horror well and that leads us i think into into a better understanding of what jesus is trying to say here about the true nature of discipleship we've psychologized this not right. surprisingly yeah, in our modern we era we've psychologized <laughs> it and jesus i think wanted to define this more tangibly to to deny yourself means you will lose your life for my sake and for the gospel's sake. And as I said earlier, some people literally did lose right, their lives. Right. But others, you know, Peter says at one point in the gospel tradition, we've left homes and families, we've left livelihood behind, we've right. left everything behind to follow you. That's really kind of the idea here. Mm-hmm. And and the New Testament seems to interpret that way because it becomes clear in the New Testament that not everybody has to suffer martyrdom right. for the sake of right. their faith. But it required a great deal of sacrifice on their part. And so Paul could even say, you know, I have died to everything that I was before right? in order to gain Christ. Paul could say, I am crucified to the world and the world to me, you know. So, right. so the language is one of, of the orientation of your life. What is, the, what is your life oriented around? Is it around your own selfish self-will mm-hmm. or is it around... Christ, right, as the one who is uh, the one we follow, and and, yeah. and yeah, and thus we follow him in his life of self-sacrifice and love and service. The, the thing about it is, I think you know we like to say, we like to think of well, it's a cross I have to bear. Yes, <laughs> and that yes. is such I a trivialization. That a lot. That's a, really a trivialization because right, right. because taking up your cross does not mean just bearing with some annoying difficulty in life. Right. Taking up your cross means a fundamental choice, a fundamental focus. decision of the will focus of your... to, to, to place your allegiance, mm-hmm. the allegiance of your life in the hands of Jesus and, and to, to make your primary allegiance in life to be towards him and towards his purposes and mm-hmm. towards his mission and message. Right. The, I think it was, 
a couple podcasts ago and I talked about, you know, where is, where is your faith? And I had these little circles mm, yes, identified in the center. Too. That's right. And, and this is not where, you know, no. that your little, your little carrying a cross is one little circle you have to do. Maybe a whole, a whole bunch. That's no. not what it no. means. It means the cross is at the center of your life. Center. Right. A, a cross, a cross bearing life. Yeah. Uh, is at the center yes. of your life. Yes, 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 yes. That's what Jesus says discipleship means. Yes, yes, absolutely. And then, uh, again, continuing on, as we hit towards the end of this passage, um, it's this interesting, for those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, of the gospel will save it. That's almost a riddle, you know, in a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, what does that mean? Yeah. Well, again, I said, as I said earlier, I think Jesus knew that some of his disciples would actually have to die for his, for their faith, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but he was calling them to a fundamental reorientation of their lives Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. around God's purpose, which was not what they thought right. it was, you know. I think the people who, who signed on to follow Jesus as his disciples, we, we have evidence in certain places where they're thinking they're going to be they're going to be uh, sitting pretty, um, right. you know, Jesus is going to be on the throne of Israel, and yep. they're going to be his, uh, the right you know, left side. his right and yeah, left yeah, side. Yeah, you know, yeah. they're gonna, it's going to be a win-win thing for them. And Jesus says, no, no, this is all about losing and giving mm-hmm. up and sacrificing for others. In fact, you know, the, the, the idea of gaining the world, uh, the word is used oftentimes in a financial context. And so... What is that word? What is that word? Cardino. Cardino. And it's used in a context of financial gain, though not always. But I think Jesus is saying basically that if we hold to that attitude of our fundamental allegiance in life is to self, that we will actually, that's a formula for losing our lives. Yeah. And the only way that we can truly find our lives is to give it away in love and sacrifice to others. Yeah. And I think you have a really awesome quote here from Philippians 3.8. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Yeah. The verb zemiao is the is the verb that Jesus uses for for losing your life and and it's the same verb that Paul uses when he says I have suffered the loss of all yeah. things. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Finally, Jesus uh pronounces that final thing, who is ashamed of me and my words in this age and that the son of man will be ashamed when he comes in glory. What what is going on? I mean, this is a another step um, beyond just following, but also what does it mean if you are, if you're denying Jesus? What it means if you're condemning? And to be honest with you, you know, you said that the part about get behind me, Satan was always a, trouble, a, a stumbling point for you. This has always been a stumbling point yeah. for me. This really, I struggle with making sense out of this in terms of the Jesus that embraces sinners and tax collectors that draws the least and the last and the left out. I, this, this, is, this is troubling to me. I think, though, we might get a clue from the verb uh, ashamed, to be ashamed of Jesus. Um, and here the verb is episkunamai, and it's not a common word, but the basic verb root, iskuno, is used throughout the Septuagint to indicate behavior that is blameworthy or disreputable or even demonstrates sort of a betrayal. And so I think I think the idea is that those who are ashamed of Christ mm-hmm. are those those who who start out on the path of discipleship, but when they realize what it's really going to cost them, 
they turn back and they, mm-hmm. they abandon right. the commitment to follow Jesus in discipleship. I spent a lot of years in the Baptist world, and in that kind of an evangelical context, the, the way this is assumed is that you don't bear verbal witness to Christ. Right. That's what's assumed here, is that if you don't tell people about Jesus, right. then Jesus won't acknowledge you. I don't think that makes I much don't sense think out that, of this well, context Well, of course, we're in a Presbyterian world where I, I think this would be acting. The whole thing, the whole point of this passage is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Right. And so I think this is basically saying, you know, it's, it's like saying, count the cost. Don't, uh, don't start out on the path if you don't think you're willing to fulfill it. And to some extent, it, it's really more of a sense of there is a great cost to, to following yeah. Jesus. Yeah. It's going to cost you your very life. Right, right. And it, whether you have to actually die, it's still going to cost you your right. very life. Right. You're going to have to give yourself away in service to others following right. Jesus' example. And how many of us have, have lost acquaintances, have lost, have lost um, people that we thought had our backs because— we have said, look, you know, I, I'm not going to follow that, right. that path. We, we live in a world in which, technically speaking, there's not a great cost to being a Christian. But if you get really serious about what your discipleship to Christ is going to look like, there's always a cost. And so the idea of being ashamed here is to shrink back. I think that's what Jesus is talking about. Those who start out following Jesus, but then they realize how much it's going to cost them, and they shrink back, and they turn away, and they, they betray their commitment to follow Jesus. I think that's what he's talking about. It's a yeah, big deal yeah. here. Uh, yeah, I yeah. mean, you could almost call it apostasy. Yeah. 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 No, I think that's fair. I think that's good. I, I, I agree. I agree. I don't have your expertise here, but I agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and I'm taking that mainly from the Hebrew Bible, the way the word is used in the Hebrew mm-hmm. Bible. It's used a lot in the Hebrew Bible. It would be, it would be worth your while to, to just do a word search uh, on, on that verb, ashamed, in, okay. in the Hebrew Bible. Yeah, because yeah. It's, it's, I think that's very instructive in trying to understand okay. what Jesus is saying. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Be back. We're back, and I'm going to let Christy have a chance to tell us a bit about how the Reformers approach this very important passage. So, Christy, what did the Reformers make out of this text? Sure. And this is one of those that instead of jumping straight to the Reformers, we're going to go back and kind of look at the Middle Ages um, and the early church and see how the church formed around this. And this whole idea of denial of self, um, take up your cross, follow me, and what did that mean? Um, Once they saw Jesus uh, die on the cross, there was this sense that to be a true follower, I too must be in line to be a martyr. And of course, we saw that with the early disciples and the various martyrdoms that they had. Um, And that really continued um, through the early church until, of course, Christianity becomes an official religion of the Roman Empire. And then all of a sudden, you're not martyred for being Christian anymore, you know. And so um, some of these earlier 
church followers thought, well, how can I show my devotion in that same kind of full commitment? Um, I'm going to lose my life, and yet I'm not being persecuted for it. Now, now, mind you, um, some of it was perception, because if we talked about the, the Roman Empire didn't consistently go after Christians, that there were pockets and there were periods, and it depended what province you were in, et cetera. So it wasn't a consistent persecution. But by the time it's official, then it is um, this mentality that it was a consistent persecution. And by then, it's like, how can I show my true commitment to Christ? So you got the emergence of the monastic movement. We saw that the Desert Fathers, my favorite, um, Simon, Simon Stylites, you know, he sat up on a pole, 60-foot pole for year after year after year, and that's how he denied himself, was to sit on top of a pole and survive. And then, you know, we move into Benedict, uh, who said, look, these aren't logical ways, but you can deny yourself and follow Christ and deny your physical being by by joining into this kind of order and, and committing yourself to Christ. And so being a true disciple was somebody then that found a way to deny their physical selves. And so that asceticism come, came in as, as a piece of it. That's fascinating. You know, I never, I think before today, I never put together the fact that the monastic movement arose because there was no longer a danger of, of losing your life, literally, uh, in the Roman Empire because of the persecutions. That's exactly, exactly. It's it's one of the main reasons mm. it, it it arose. And and I think Benedict also had a practical sense. There's people that want to commit themselves to Christ that they don't want to put themselves through the you know some kind of hermeticism or mm-hmm. or something so outlandish. Um, but that became the ideal, and of course that became built into. Um, this idea of of, of um, celibacy into the into the priesthood as well, you know, again that that somehow is a denial of self. And so, to be at the top of the of the world, you were celibate. You weren't involved with family. You were involved in a monastic men and women in the, in these monastic homes. And so, um, if you were an average dude, an average lady, you were still going to be below. So it became this kind of um, Hierarchy, as Definitely, we know, within yeah. a Roman Catholic tradition of who is the most worthy of following Christ, who follows Christ the best, and then who is, you know, fallen away. And so that's kind of the backdrop to the Reformation. A couple centerpieces to this. One is, for Calvin, this idea that there's no hierarchy. The disciples are simply um, used at that time to reach out to people who are particularly lethargic. He, he even mentioned mm. slothful, mm. <laughs> that are lazy to listen to the word of Christ. But they are not set above other people. And that's why he goes to the crowd. And I mentioned that that Calvin goes directly to the crowd. But I think the other thing about this that becomes really important is Luther's, of course, theology of the cross, which I should probably put first and highlight first, and we could just stop there. That is one of the crux principles of the Reformation in itself, as and the, the theology of the cross, as opposed to, if you will, a theology of glory. And so they put these against each other. But the theology of the cross, that Christ died for us, for our sins, and it is by this grace that we are saved. That's the central peace, not anything that you do that would gain yourself some kind of, of glory. So in other words, hierarchy has gone, nothing you can do, even the faith that you come to also is, is somehow um, God's doing in you. 
I almost went there when I was talking about, you know, how Jesus was defining discipleship, because it's, it's very clear that the cross is central to that. And uh, so help us with the theology of glory then. What, what what was the alternative to that? I mean, that was that was something that was going on in the Middle Ages prior to the Absolutely. Reformation. Absolutely. What was that all about? Well, of course, so this is how you are moving upwards in your and your response to faith and how that you are, the things that you do and the ways you deny yourself bring you closer and closer and closer to being like Jesus, to find yourself worthy to be saved. It, it, it makes sense within the sin and redemption cycle of the Roman Catholic tradition. Well, I do these things and then I'm, I'm pure in the face of God and whatever I can do can build up, if, if you will, glory for me so that I can be one with Jesus. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think, to me, my understanding of the theology of glory also is that the ideal is the glorified, risen Christ. Mm -hmm. That's what you're striving for. Whereas the theology of the cross is that the ideal is the crucified Christ. That is the pattern that you're striving for. You know, in a sense, with this crucified Christ, it's that God is given of himself this full love and emptied um, God's self into the giving of Christ. It, 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 and so it's like, you can't deny yourself that much. Right. It's, it's like impossible right. to to reach that. And therefore you just have to rely on faith. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's the foolishness of the cross, you sure. know, in a way that, sure. that comes through there. Um, so it's kind of counterproductive to how we process our lives as human beings, you know, because it's not about the work we do at all. Yeah, the path of the cross is the path of downward mobility, not upward mobility. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's really God coming down. And so and so everything you do is only born off out of that love. Yeah. So and I guess I should I should say, you know, the the medieval church obviously had a theology and of which by which Jesus was on the cross because most of them had crucifixes front and center in their churches so they they that was a part of their their awareness but they basically came from this starting point of the glorified Christ i just think it's a different emphasis so interesting in like a roman catholic tradition as we all know there's going to be a crucifix but there's also going to be god king you know mm-hmm. is going to also be represented in that in that space. Reigning in glory. Reigning in glory. Yeah. Exactly. So there's this sense of, look, he died for us, but now you have to do these things to find yourself worthy. And that's where the difference is. So it's not that there's a denial of, of Christ's death in either either traditions, but it reflects in how you are, what your response is, you know, and, and what's the cause of that response. Well, and it's really what's, what's, the, what's the focal point of your discipleship? You know, is it is it the cross or is it the resurrected Christ? That, I need to reach. I need to reach reach to the level of the risen exactly. and glorified Christ. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's a constant reminder. Whereas here, you know, in a, in a Protestant church, you're going to have this empty cross, died and resurrected, and a resurrected Christ. And yet, more likely, the pattern for discipleship is going to be the crucified Christ. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The pattern for discipleship, the emptiness of self, yes. just as 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 God emptied. God's self to give Jesus to us. That same kind of emptying is what is what is thought, and it's in that emptying then, and that complete realization that there is nothing I can do but rely on God's love for me. Sure. So some different emphases there that become central to the Reformation. Yeah. When we talked about the parallel that Jesus drew between his path that would lead to his suffering and death, and and the fact that he defined discipleship. Uh, in terms of denying themselves and taking up their own cross, uh, how did how did the reformers approach that? 
So yeah, it kind of it, it kind of varies a little bit from from reformer to reformer, and I think it 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 varies from space to space. For Calvin, the idea of bearing the cross was self denial, and an imitation of the qualities of Jesus. You know, giving to the poor, being kind, being being a champion for justice, that kind of thing. Now, I think interesting in these traditions. Um, it, after Calvin, then, as, as we get kind of moving towards groups that become more radical, becomes a, almost a radical following. So it becomes very um, rule-oriented, which I think is mm. interesting. Um, and so that you have to follow these rules um, to show that you are indeed following Christ. So what a strange space. Um, and so we see that in, the, in the, some of the Anabaptist sure. traditions. We see well, that in it's almost the like Puritans. A, they almost take the Sermon on the Mount and turn it into another set of commandments. Exactly. Yeah. And there's a, there's a real emphasis on, on law and, and, and abiding by laws because that's how you're, that's how you're reflecting your having given yourself to Christ. So they, they, they would practice in these churches very strict prescriptions for, for reflecting to you a saved person or that you that you were following in, in example. So it, it's kind of a strange space. And yet I thought it was interesting because when you really look at one place in institutes, and I think it was in the fourth book, Calvin was kind of interesting because he was emphasizing that forgiveness is first. And Peter, who was, you know, this, this wonderful disciple, denied Christ three times and was still forgiven. And so that's kind of in Calvin's yeah. space. And yet, a little bit further on, we get this whole book of church discipline that, you know, helps you recognize how, how well you've conformed. Uh, yeah, so I think right. there's a reality here between the theology and kind of the reality, you know, how does the church function? And I would say there's a little bit of um, disconnect there. Well, yeah, he may have had a theology of of forgiveness for not following Christ um, as consistently as possible, but you might not be able to take communion. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I, I do think, I do think in Calvin's world, um, remind you, Calvin himself was fleeing from religious persecution, which ultimately landed him in Geneva uh, twice. And also, he was very involved with the persecutions going on in France um, and was always trying to support those Protestants there who, who were under great persecution from the Roman Catholic king. And so I think in the back of his mind was still forgiveness at every chance possible. He still had that in his heart. Now, people get after him because of the death of Servetus and claiming that he was this monster. And I think, again, what we don't understand in in today's world is the church and state are together. Mm -hmm. Calvin didn't act alone. And you had Servetus who was actually threatening the state. But you also, when you read Calvin, his heart's very heavy at this this having to happen Mm -hmm. at all. I think that's interesting because I think he, he really felt that that wasn't ultimately the space of the church. And he was ready to forgive Serratus as well. But uh, ultimately, there's some conformity. And I mean, I think we deal with this as pastors too. Sure. Um, we do. You know, to what extent can you allow Rabbawazer to continue to be in your sanctuary? At what point do you have to ask On them to leave? On your session. <laughs> On your session. Yeah. What point do you have to ask this person to leave? And yeah. and and uh, sometimes that simply is 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 has to be done. That's a far distance from here, but when church and state are together, mm. it's it's even a different space, right? right? Yeah, the, the, the ecclesiastical discipline has some teeth that we may not really find so savory in our context. We don't, and particularly today, but um, 
you know, it, 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 today we are, we also have this freedom, <laughs> this uh, division of, uh, of church and state that they didn't have then. So, yeah. yeah. Now, of course, the, the reformers were, were responding to and reacting against and arguing against the Catholic tradition in a lot of ways. Um, and we know that Peter played an important role in the Catholic tradition. And, and, you know, this whole rebuke of Peter, did they make something out of that in their, in their day? Uh, in their in their polemic against the Catholic tradition, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they didn't want Peter to be elevated, so it kind of fits that context of as a disciple, he had a specific role at a specific time, but it did not allow him to set himself above or any of the disciples above the crowd, who is also called a discipleship. Calvin probably didn't realize, but in a way, he he, he allowed space for for women and and former slaves and all kinds of people to enter the ministry in a lot of ways because, well, think about this, because you're looking for equality. We often don't think of the Reformation as opening the doors to to equality because they were they were still living in such regimented a regimented time with regimented social structures. structures, Exactly. But you start to get these inklings of this. Well, gosh, everyone needs to be educated. Everybody, everybody needs to be able to read. Okay, all of a sudden, we have this ident- uh, this realizations that gosh, women women can be as spiritually um, called as men, and so when you start to say, gosh, there may be twelve men as disciples, but the crowd is called, that it really can start that that direction mm-hmm. and allowing everybody to serve. I mean, I think that's a, a legitimate argument. Now you're going to find reformed traditions that you know still today are vehement that women don't belong in a ministry, but I think by equaling the crowd, which includes women and slaves and all kinds of people, that it opens up everybody mm. to to serve. Interesting that he that that he would pick up on that and and use the fact that Jesus addressed his call to discipleship to the crowd as an argument for um, you know equality basically in the church. That's that's fascinating. Uh, it, it 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 is, and yet I think it has repercussions today that he didn't anticipate. Right? <laughs> you know, um, you weren't thinking in that day that that women would serve. You weren't thinking in that day right. that slaves would serve. Yeah. But yet it really did because in, in his fight to say, look, in the Roman Catholic Church, you've got this hierarchy of people and that's not, that's not the kingdom of God. That's not how, that's not how people were called. So oh, it's, it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting yeah. comment. Yeah. So we did talk a little bit about uh, self-denial in the medieval church, but how did the reformers understand this idea of denying oneself and taking up one's cross or losing one's life for the sake of Jesus and the gospel? I'm assuming they wouldn't necessarily embrace the monastic idea. Absolutely (laughs) not. In fact, this is this whole shift where you get this new focus on the family as being the center. So there's a whole focus on denial of self as serving others if you will. Mm-hmm. So giving to the poor, uh, paying alms, um, all these things that you can do to help others. Um, so it's a, it's a different sense of it. Caring for family, that your family should be the center so they can carry out their work as children of God. So a very different approach mm-hmm. to what that meant. And again, it depended on how far that went. I keep thinking of... Um, the Christ and culture is it is it Reinhold Niebuhr? Yes, um, who wrote the Christ and culture yes. thing, and so you kind of get the beginnings of that, right? So, is our job as Christians to be responding in culture to all in need, 
Yes. Or some would say, oh, but in following the rules, your job is to separate yourselves out and care only for that community that have committed uh, themselves to Christ. So you start to see that. And again, we see... Um, That's still going on today. Yeah, Absolutely. And you see the groups now that have are the modern-day Amish and modern-day mm-hmm. Mennonite groups that are separate themselves from culture, that their call to be Christians is to be serving this small community in Christ that all have are following those rules appropriately. So they're divided from, whereas Calvin would say, no, you got to deal with the riffraff as well. I mean, he, he was absolutely Christians were responsible to the community as a whole. But, and so they lived out their, their self-denial through service, I guess, primarily. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, you know, we talked a little bit about, from a biblical standpoint, what it meant that Jesus said that um, those who are ashamed of me and my words, I'll be ashamed of them. Um, did, the, did the reformers pay any attention to that at all? Those who are not responding to church discipline were the ones that were showing that they were ashamed of Christ. Really? So, in other words, they were equating um, your response to following those rules set as a response that you were a, a true follower. So being ashamed of Christ means um, not obeying church discipline. Well, and church discipline equals secular law. Yeah, secular yeah, law. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. So that's it's a, kind of a strange... That's a very different place. It's a different place than we're in today. You know, that there's a still a big, a huge respect for um, secular rulers. I mean, there's still this understanding that these rulers are selected by God. Yeah, I guess you don't have much room for a Barman declaration in in 16th century Geneva. (laughs) No, you don't. And yet I think it's interesting because here's Calvin. He actually has some heart for these French Christians that aren't yet Protestants who are are worshiping in silence. He he actually feels that they, they should, you know, Stand up against this unjust king who obviously, um, who obviously is like an antichrist kind of figure, you know, and, and or is encouraged by the antichrist, and therefore he's not a legitimate ruler. And you should, and so, so he could he could speak against a ruler. Yeah, he, he, there was a concept, I guess, that a ruler may may or may not be endorsed by God. Yeah, or, exactly, know, and of by course, divine right, and and then militarily, is this becomes a big. Um, this becomes a big secular thing as well. You know, you get this whole rise. If you get the Schmalkaldic League, which is a Protestant, uh, a, a Protestant fighting force, so you get these wow. Protestants all united against the Catholic, the Catholic forces, and it's it becomes this big battle against you know who are the righteous and the true leaders of of Christ's kingdom. Let me put this back into medieval context, because you had Christendom, then you had everybody living as people of Christ under the one true church. So what happens is, who's the true church? Who's the false church in the Reformation period? And and so it's one of the bloodiest periods of all time. And of course, this is ultimately going to play out in the Thirty Years' War, which in the minds of those folks is very akin to how World War II is in our minds today. Mm. I mean, with that kind of of pain and horror. a righteous horror, cause. Absolutely. But 30 years of this... Mm the death and destruction because it's really the emergence of what we consider modern warfare, um, a totalitarian kind of warfare, you know, where we're, we're at. And, um, and where nothing, civilians are targeted along with soldiers. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, full villages, you know, destroyed. And um, uh, 1648, and they look back and they're like, Really, this all resulted in that. So we think of this Reformation. Some people think of this time as being just this kind of religious thing that happened. 
this overturned society. Mm-hmm. This overturned how they understood that. Uh, how they understood themselves as Christian people in the world. And it really isn't until we get the aftermath of 1648 and the birth of the Enlightenment that we get concepts like division of church and state. Anything else you'd like to uh, add? I think we're good. Let's, we'll, okay. we'll meet up again for our last few comments. All right. Thanks, Christy. Hi, everybody. We are back just for some final comments about this very important passage. I couldn't have uh, Alan and I talk about this concept of cheap grace versus costly grace. So we're taking some of these ideas of uh, Luther's theology of the cross that comes central to um, our Protestant identity, but it becomes really a big deal in some of our confessing church um, theologians, Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So let's talk about costly grace versus grace. Yeah, well, and of course, Bonhoeffer is the one who, who really we, we associate with the idea of cheap grace and costly grace. Um, and, and Bonhoeffer talks about this in his uh, volume on discipleship. I'm going to give a bit of a, a parenthesis here. If you're like me and you have read The Cost of Discipleship, the English translation, the throw it away, burn it, get rid of it. It's probably one of the worst translations of a theological work I've ever encountered. My church in Houston did a study of this in Sunday school, and I actually had the German Nachfolge, and so I was using that alongside the study of the cost of discipleship, and the translators literally make Bonhoeffer say the opposite of what he's saying in German in, in a number of cases. And th- this is not something that's new. People who are Bonhoeffer scholars have known this for years. And so uh, Fortress Press has, has issued uh, a multi-volume edition of Bonhoeffer's works. And the, the new edition, it's a 2011 volume, is called Discipleship. Now, it's hardback. It's from Fortress. It's expensive. But you can get it on Kindle also. If you want to read Bonhoeffer, you have to read him in this edition. You do. And I know all of you that are newer pastors, everyone has given you their cop- copies. I have multiple copies now of The Cost of Discipleship because your pastors from before don't want them, and they don't have the heart to throw them away. And you need to throw them away. <laughs> they, they're worthless. They are worthless. They're worthless. Truly worthless. One of the, if you've read it, the, one of the reasons why you were so confused is because because the the translators botched it yeah. <laughs> but but that costly grace we we associate with Bonhoeffer and Bonhoeffer says it this way costly grace is costly because it calls us to discipleship it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ it is costly because it costs people their lives it is grace because it thereby makes them live above all grace is costly because it was costly to God because it costs God the life of God's Son, and because nothing can be cheap to us that was costly to God. Above all, it is grace because the life of God's Son was not too costly for God to give in order to make us live. That's Bonhoeffer Discipleship in Bonhoeffer's Works, Volume 4, page 45. And, you know, those are, those are words that have, that have echoed in my ears and in my life since the 80s when I first read The Cost of Discipleship. And um, this is where I think that theology of the cross really becomes central. Because if we believe that our discipleship is about following Jesus in a path that is going to lead us to our own cross, then 
you know, if we really take that seriously, we, we have to understand that, that our discipleship is going to be costly to us. It is going to cost us our lives. We are going to have to sacrifice all those dreams, all those desires, all those fundamental ideas about what our life looks like. That's really where the water, where the water hits the wheel, mm-hmm. where, the, where mm-hmm. the rubber meets the road, I think. We all have these life dreams. We all have these aspirations. We have these wishes and these, these hopes of what we want our life to look like. And if we are going to follow Christ in a path that leads to the cross, our life is not going to look like that. We're fortunate to live in a country where, you know, we don't have to literally give up our lives for the sake of our right. Christian faith. There are places in the world where that's the case. Right, right. But we don't have to do that. And yet, we, it is a serious sacrifice to give up that which is most dear, things we cherish the most, in this life. Now, it doesn't mean we have to separate ourselves from them permanently, like the, you know, the monks did. It doesn't mean we have to go off in the desert and, and, and sit in a cave for the rest of our lives. But it might mean that we'll wind up serving in a place that's far away from anything that is familiar to us or far away from those we love. And there's a cost to that. I mean, I think when we, when we determine to follow Christ, we have to just basically realize we're putting all of our hopes and our dreams and the things we cherish most in this life on the table and, 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 and saying to, to, to Christ, take them, they're yours. Right. You know, my right. life is yours. Yeah. And I'm yeah. going to follow you. Use me however, however I'm designed to be. Exactly. And, and that is, is a challenge. And um, I think, you know, as Alan's pointing out, that call is, is, is pastors. And yet I think if we look at the larger Christian church, I think we find a lot of people professing to be Christians that simply aren't willing to do that. And I, I mean, I think there is something to be said of, of wanting to be a Christian and, 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 and a starting space, you know, if we are looking at sanctification. But ultimately, you have to really um, process and and. and respond to that claim of faith and respond to the way God is asking you to, you know, the choices that God is asking you to make. And uh, I think that's a really hard thing to do. And I think a lot of people just simply ignore it. And I see it so often. I was, <laughs> I was laughing, Alan, I told him I was going to quote this song by the Jane Deere girls. He's laughing at me. It's if, if, if you know, good girls gone bad, it's a really, really funny song, but you know, it reminds me of these people claiming to be Christians doing nothing like it, expecting that somehow it sits as a moniker of, look at me, I'm claiming to be Christian and therefore I'm a good person. And without really any commitment to the this denying self, um, you know, take, taking up the cross. There's no plan of that ever. And um, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. Well, I think one of the great challenges the church faces in America today is that due to our prosperity and due to our relative uh, safety and, and security as a, as a nation, um, Christ, the Christian church has become much more of a cultural phenomenon than the countercultural movement that it, it originated as. And so we have folks who are, who are cultural Christians, essentially. They're Christian because they were raised in the church. Right. They're Christian because it's, it's right and good to be a, a church member. They're Christians because um, uh, they want to be good people. 
But as you mentioned, you know, this whole idea of, of laying your whole life down at the feet of Jesus and saying, okay, here I am, Lord, um, not my will, but thine be done. Send me wherever you can use me most effectively to build up the body of Christ, wherever that may be. Exactly. You know, how many people are willing to do that? You know, most people are tied to a place. Most people are tied to their families. Most people are tied to um, their, their life dreams, the things that they cherish most, and they're not willing to give them up. And I, I will say, I think for some people, it may be an issue of awareness. People who've lived in one place all their lives, just the thought of living someplace else, moving someplace else for the sake scary. of the Christian faith, it's not only scary, it's just not, it's right. not even, right. it's a non sequitur. It doesn't even compute to them. Right, right. And, and so there's a sense of awareness there. I think they're not even aware that they're putting their own um, cherished hopes and dreams and, and wishes uh, ahead of their faith in Christ. Right, I don't think right. that they're they're being ashamed of Christ, you know, in right, their minds. Right, right, they're, right. They're just they're just this is this is the pattern of life that they have lived, and it's right. just it, this is all what they know. Right. And so I I, I want to I don't want to sound too harsh on right. on folks right. who fall into this. I think I think it really falls to us as as leaders in the church to try to continually challenge people with the message of the cross. I agree. And yeah. what that means for us as Christian I disciples. I think so. Yes. Yes. I think well said. Um, and, and that's the challenge. And, and I, I, I don't really have anything else to add. I think that's exactly what our call is. So absolutely. good luck in this all friends. This is a, <laughs> this is a big passage and um, uh, we have a lot of work to do. Yes, Thanks indeed. for listening. Thanks Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.